Have you ever had somebody tell you that you look like somebody, uh, maybe a celebrity or something? Raise your hands. If that's ever happened to you, all right, we'll have a confession time on who you look like later on. But uh, uh, I uh, was playing around this week during my free time, all right, uh, on, the, on just Googling something, looking for lookalikes. Who do I look alike? And uh, I have to admit that God threw away the mold, okay? Nobody looks like me. There's only one of me out there in this world, and thank God for maybe for that. But uh, I actually, there's actually programs, or, or, or there's, there's not programs, but there's, uh, there's a search engine, excuse me, there are websites out there, that's the word, websites out there that if you go in and you download your photo into it, they'll try to find matches. And so I had some fun time with that, trying to find if there was anybody who looked like me or I looked like them, depending on, I guess, your angle of it. And uh, the closest I could get was about 83% uh, looking like somebody. Now, when I laughed whenever I saw these, and I, I just kind of took some of them down, about four or five of them, that, 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 that they said that I looked like this, whatever out there, said that I looked like. So here, here, here are a couple of the examples of who I am supposed to look like. Uh, 83% match on Tim Dowling, all right? I don't know that I see a much of a resemblance there, but... Uh, He's an attractive guy, so I can, I can handle that. Um, now, some of these others. Uh, Sean Connery, another one that uh, 76%. I, I got a little white in my beard, and I'm losing it up top, so, you know, I can see there. Uh, now, the next one, though, I was a little bit, uh, uh, I wasn't real pleased with that one, all right? Uh, the next one, though, John Travolta, though. Uh, that, that's, that's me, I guess. Literally, I had somebody walk out of here one day. And, and say, my, it was an older couple, and they said, you look like John Travolta. And, and I didn't know if it was the staying alive John Travolta or the heavyweight John Travolta or, or, or which, which John Travolta they were talking about. I also made an eye appointment for them immediately because uh, I was nothing, I'm nothing like John Travolta. Who do you look like? Who are you most like out there? Well, take your Bibles. We find in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. We're finally back on track with where we've been going through the book of Ephesians. And we're in chapter 5. And we're going to talk about stepping up the pace today. Because who we should look like is not a John Travolta or a John Malkovich or any of those other guys. But who should we look like? Who should we really look like is, is I guess, the question that I want to propose to you today and try to model our, our, our life after. Watchman Nee, a, a, a Chinese Christian, who I look nothing alike, uh, here's the picture of him, Watchman Nee, uh, actually, when talking about the book of Ephesians, kind of outlined it into three simple statements. I thought it was very good, very accurate, too. He mentioned that the first part of Ephesians is he really, the Paul emphasizes the sitting part, that sit is, is the first kind of word that he uses to describe Ephesians, where we're understanding who we are in Christ and just realizing that foundation of sitting in that reality. Now, the word sit is not in there, but he's, he's trying to get go somewhere with that. Just the foundation of who we are is in those first three chapters of Ephesians. But really picking up in chapter 4 and all the way to chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 9, he really goes to the next phase, and that's the walk. So it's set, then walk. And really, you see a tremendous amount of, of theme in this, uh, of talking about the walk. You see the walk mentioned in so many different places. You find it in chapter 4, verse 1, where he tells us to walk worthy. Chapter 4, verse 4, 17, where he tells us uh, where we're not supposed to walk. And then he, chapter 5, verse 2, 
He tells us to walk in love, which we'll look at in a moment in 5 verse 8, to walk as children of the light. And then in chapter 5 verse 15, to walk wisely. So there's a whole lot of walking going on. And that walking is something we're going to zero in on today. But the last part of Ephesians, is he mentions stand. And that's the stand firm. And he says it again and again and again in chapter 6 where he talks about the spiritual battle that we are in. So sit, walk, stand. It's a pretty good breakdown if you're looking at a 30,000 feet view of the book of Ephesians to kind of see where we need to be, understand what we're about. And that whole sit, walk, stand, where we're at today is really understanding where we're walking, where we're going, this journey that we're on, this path that we're that we're that we're trotting down. Who are we like on this journey? Who are we becoming like? Who's our mentor? Who's our protege? Who are we imitating as we walk through this life? And you see in verse one where he makes it very clear where our walk is supposed to derive itself from. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Verse 1, be imitators of God. Be imitators. What does it mean to be an imitator? It's actually a Greek word we get our word mimic from. It's interesting that we, we, you would literally, he would say mimic God. Mimic God. Take on his characteristics. Follow his example. Walk in his way. So, I mean, you would expect that in church, right? On Sunday morning? Who are you supposed to imitate? Well, God. Kind of like the kid who's in Sunday school class and the teacher's talking about this little furry animal that runs along the ground with a big furry tail on the back and, and says, well, what animal am I talking about? The little kid raises his hand and says, Jesus. He says, sounds like a squirrel, but it's got to be Jesus because we're in church. Well, you know, that's the kind of, you're always the answer is Jesus, right? Well, you know, yes, it is. There's, there's a lot to that, but, but let's get past the, the cliches. Let's really understand what it means to to be an imitator of God, to mimic God, to let Him be our prototype. And again, that's a that's a that's how long's a piece of rope. How, how much do you how much do you look like God, and, and how do you look like God, and what characteristic do you do you claim and do you focus in on? And we could spend years. In fact, we we should spend years. We should spend the rest of our life studying God so that we can understand who we're supposed to mimic, who we're supposed to look like who we're supposed to resemble. But I'm afraid that we've got a problem in our Christian faith, that we've compartmentalized Christian faith into sections. We, we understand the past, present, the future very well. And so we've compartmentalized Christianity to the past and to the future. We've left Christianity out of the present. So much of our time is we want redemption, we want freedom, we, we want to be free from the guilt of the sins of our past. We, we want Jesus to be in our past because we've got a rap sheet because it hasn't been a perfect life because when we look at the past it either brings up painful images and bad memories and things like that so we want God to be the redeemer of our past we all, by all means we want God to be the redeemer of our future we want God to save us and so what, what you do is you get people who come to church and they point back to a time when they were a child they said, yes, I was saved and I was baptized back there. And yes, I'm going to heaven one day when I die. But when you look at their life now, it's a different story. We've compartmentalized the Christian faith to the past and to the future. We've forgotten the present. 
So we have to look deep into our life, deep into our faith. We have to ask ourselves, where am I walking? Who am I following? Who am I mimicking? Who do I look like? When the rubber meets the road and the faith is really put to the test, when my life undergoes scrutiny, who do I look like? Who do people say I look like? How do you mimic God in the day-to-day of your life? Again, big, big question to ask. And I think what he does in in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and the verses 1 to 14 is he really kind of helps us to get at least a couple of handles, a couple of ways that we can maybe grab a hold of this mimicking act, this imitation act, not imitation, excuse me, imitating, not imitations of Christ, but imitating him, looking like him, mimicking him, following his example. And so I want us to look at a couple of these today. Number one, I want us to, to understand that there's a challenge set before us to walk in love. That's the very first way that, that we can mimic God, to imitate God, to walk in love. When you look at verse 2, if you follow along there, he says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. To walk in love. And then he goes on so far as to give us exactly what that looks like. Because I'm afraid that, again, as is, is ambiguous as it is to mimic God, to say that phrase, and that's what we're supposed to do, it's just as, it's just as ambiguous to say to walk in love. What does that look like? What does real walking in love look like? Well, he, he defines it for us. He says, as Christ loved us. As Christ loved us. And how did he love us? Well, he gave himself up for us. Again, I think what we need to understand as we look into our life and we look into the way we relate with other people, the very people that Jesus loved, how much in our life are we loving people? We use people. We we coerce people. We manipulate people. We network with people. We know people. But do we love people? I was talking to somebody just this week on the phone. I said, life would be great without people. You know? And they agreed to that. You know, people kind of get in the way of having a good life sometimes. But the reality is, is that that's the world that we live in. And that's the community which God put us into. And that's the community God said, I want you to walk. I want you to have a love for them. The present tense there is a a verb indicating this habitual habit of lifestyle where literally it becomes a part of our life. Walking in love as Christ loved us as Christ gave himself up for us. We need to live in love. That means living out our days, walking in this living life. We need to relate with others in love. We need to supervise. If you're a supervisor, you need to supervise in love. You need to look toward your neighbors in love. You need to deal with antagonists in love. Even Jesus said, love your enemies. And again, it may be a constant exploration of your life to learn how to love the person that you cannot stand the most. But that may be a life journey. How do I walk 
manner of love. If you believe the 1965 song, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love, it's the only thing that there's just too little of, then I think you turn to the Christian faith and you have find, you have found the best example of love. Because it was Jesus who, again, when we imitate God, how, did it, how do we imitate God? We walk in love. And how do we walk in love? We, uh, he loved us and He gave Himself up for us. And Jesus said, you know, we don't love your neighbor as you love yourself. We have little difficulty in loving ourselves. We buy clothes and food and entertainment. And we make sure we're fed and watered and all that good stuff taken care of, but how much do we look into our neighbor, whoever our neighbor is? We know them, we don't know them. They live next to us, they work with us. How much do we really pour ourselves into them, into absolute strangers, and again, even into those that are our enemies in this world? I look around this room, and again, just the last time you'll see this expo up for a year, but I just want you to understand these are opportunities for you to love. Complete strangers, children, emerging generations, people as they come in off the street for the very first time and they've never been here. You can, you can literally, as we call it, hugs. You can embrace them through hospitality, through ushers, through greeters, through safety. There's so many ways that you can just begin to walk in love. Now, again, this is not an advertisement message for the church because this is a 24-7 thing. You're loving your neighbor, but when it becomes your lifestyle, when you have opportunity to take a child who's two or three years old, and even though your children are way past that, you take time with that two or three-year-old child and you pour love into them. What a beautiful example that is. You know, Gandhi was obviously one of the greatest Hindu leaders of, uh, of the 20th century. Gandhi, though, studied much of the scriptures, the Bible that we have. In fact, his favorite text to read from the words of Jesus. And out of all the texts that Jesus spoke and recorded, his favorite was the Sermon on the Mount. And he, his favorite part of all the Sermon on the Mount was simply the Beatitudes. And he said this, if I had seen more Christians living out the Beatitudes, I would have become a Christian. I wonder again sometimes if we were to walk if we just live and love sacrificially the way Jesus lived and loved sacrificially. I love it that 130-something people gathered here yesterday and just flooded our community. Six, six homes and just poured themselves into it. You talk about love. That's a beautiful example. There's a lot of other things you could have been doing on a day like yesterday. Absolutely beautiful after all the rain that we've had. I love it. This room was full with praise, but then this light, they went out from here and they served as an act of worship. If you and I would learn to walk in love, we have to believe that our friends, our neighbors, even our enemy, would see the difference. But let me tell you this. When we walk in love, God smells the difference. Knows the last part is verse 2. When we walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us, it becomes a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. 
that literally whenever you think practically and you think on a very practical grassroots level of how you can love someone, it becomes, as using Paul, he reaches into, back into the Old Testament, talking about this fragrant sacrifices, the burnt offerings. You literally are bringing your worship to God. You might have thought what Jared and them were leading up here was worship, and absolutely a part of it. But literally, when you are walking in love in your neighborhoods with your friends, you are literally bringing worship to God. When you are serving the children, you are literally bringing up worship to God. Whenever you are greeting people and making them feel welcomed as a part of our community of faith, you are literally bringing worship to God. It is a fragrant offering up to God. So the first thing we need to do is walk in love. If we're going to mimic God, let's walk in love. He is the, he is the prototype of love. The second thing is live above your animal instincts. Alright? Live above your animal instincts. I think we're all animals if we were to face it. Now, some are more tame than others. Some are civilized in their in their animal ways. But we're like a daily like a daily visit to the zoo, I, I'm afraid, whenever I look at my life and the, the natural tendencies uh, of my life. Because it, it just becomes natural. Some of the things that I want to do, some of the desires of my heart, naturally, like an animal instinct, I just go there. I have that attitude. I have that that, that perspective. I, I lust for that. I long for that. I, I covet that. And if I'm really going to walk as God models for us in Christ, then I've got to move beyond the animal instinct. All right? I've got to move beyond living that kind of animalistic kind of way. Look at verse 3, because I think it's a stern warning to us. Because after he talks about imitating God and walking in love, he says, but, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you. There are certain sins that were very prominent in Ephesus. But it's ironic that even though you may change the centuries, and even though you may take us out of man robes and sandals and put us in suits and ties, it's amazing to me when you look back at the first century and it looks a whole lot like the 21st century. Because the same things that were stumbling people and causing people to bumble through life then... And they were trying to mix it into their life. Then we are still doing the same thing today. We've got to rise above these animal instincts. What are a couple of them? Because he mentions two of them very clearly, very, uh, very plainly here. Number one is we need to avoid the common pitfall of the emptiness of sensuality. There's an emptiness in sensuality that we need to understand that it is, it, it is out there. In verse 3 again, if you if you look back there, he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity. So in case you didn't think it covered it all in the sexual immorality, he just lumps all impurities. And the interesting thing about that word, sexual immorality, it's actually one Greek word, and it's the Greek word poine. We get our English word pornography from that word poine. He's telling us, that that doesn't need to be a part of us. The last part of verse 3 makes it very clear. When he says, it is not proper among the saints. That's the way of the world. That's the way of the animal inside of us. That's that sexual, immoral, sensual, driven world out there. That's what everybody else does. 
That's what everybody else is. It's not the way we do it. We live at a different standard. We live at a different model. Now, you got to understand Ephesus again. Ephesus was a, was a unique town. And, and I would say that our sensuality of America is obviously very gross, very, very much destroying families. Pornography and all of its availability and things like that that are, that are in this world today. But in Ephesus, it was at a different level. See, in Ephesus was the temple Diana. And it was one of the oldest temples, pagan temples of that day. And it was located in Ephesus. And then this temple literally, so where today we might feel shame and dirty and guilt because of an extramarital affair or because of pornography or something like that. Literally in that day and in that age, it was so licensed that you would go to the temple and you could hire a prostitute for your religious services. That's how prominent it was. And what 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 Paul is doing is he's standing in the road of the culture of that day and he's saying, listen, this porne lifestyle, this sexual immoral lifestyle, that's not the way. That's not the proper way of those who are followers of Christ. And again, does he have to spell it out? Pedophiles, that, that, that's wrong. That's evil. That's wrong. But pornography is okay, right? It's only me and my computer. Pornay. It starts with the simplest things. And I deal with enough men private conversations that this is huge. This is huge. And it is not a church unchurched thing. It is not a believer unbeliever thing. Just like it wasn't in the first century. Why would Paul write to the church in Ephesus and have to remind them that that lifestyle isn't fitting for a believer? for a follower of Christ unless it were an issue. We need to understand the nastiness and the and the and the shame that's that's in it. Even down in verse five, if you look down there, he says, For you may be sure that of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the there's literally a separation there that, that, listen, if that's your life, if that's the way you're going to live in that emptiness of sensuality, you're setting yourself up to be empty in eternity. In the emptiness of that of that moment. I have some dear friends that live over in this Asia Minor area, that live over in this Ephesus area. And they've been here and they've spoken at Grace Point and I was speaking with them, I don't know, a couple of months ago. And they were telling me of situations that have happened among people that they know, good people, that the, the the stronghold of immorality is still so rampant in this area of the world. And I just want to say it's also very rampant in our area of the world. Listen, we need to, as believers, as imitators, as mimickers of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that that lifestyle isn't the lifestyle of a believer. Sex is awesome. It is beautiful. And it is meaningful when it is preserved for one man and one woman. And it is shallow. And it is empty. 
And it is unfulfilling when it is reduced to a fleeing or a fantasy. Beware of that. The second might shock you. The second pitfall is one of those that you wouldn't lump side by side with an adulterous affair. But it's absolutely one of the Achilles heel of our American culture, of our Western culture, that was the same of the Ephesus culture as well. And that is the idolatry of prosperity. The idolatry of prosperity. How much we long for stuff. It's an animal instinct in us to succeed, to gain, to get, to to accumulate. And there's something inside of us that just takes over, that we will spend on plastic what we don't have in paper. Because we think we'll be okay in the end. We think we'll just leverage ourselves out even more. There's a, there's, a, there's a sickness about that. Just so we can get ahead, we buy things we, we, we don't want with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Now make sense of that with me. That doesn't make sense. It's the life we live. It's this idolatry of prosperity. And he lumps it right in there, right next to, you can't miss it, right next to an adulterous, pornographic, pedophile lifestyle, if you will. Sexual immorality, all, verse 3, sexual immorality, all impurity or covetedness must not be named among you. Listen, he's literally putting them side by side where we might make them polar opposite. We call this evil and nasty and dirty. We call this the free market economy. The getting all we can world. The getting ahead in life outliving the Joneses or outperforming the Joneses, whatever it is. I'm not saying that we all should just become paupers, but I'm saying what happens is that covetous lifestyle is whenever I see something I want that I don't have. You might have it. The store might have it. Somebody else might have it. I might just maybe see it on television. I may run across it on the internet, and all of a sudden there's something that triggers inside of me, and I want it. And I will put my family on the line to get it. I will even be careful put my faith on the line. You don't believe me? Look at verse 5. Because this is probably the biggest slap in the face if we're not careful. And it may be exactly what we need. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral and impure, which you dealt with that, or who is covetous, that is an idolatry. Now just notice that. That he literally takes right there and he defines for us what it means to be covetous. To want something that we don't have because, because it's out there and it's available. To long for it. He literally defines it. He says that person is an idolater. That person is a person who worships the stuff of this world. We're going to mimic God. We're going to have to get a control of the animal instincts of the cravings of our life. What our eyes see our hearts long for. He said, that's not me. That's not me. I don't don't do that idolatry. Notice what he says. He said, if you're going to long for the idolatry of this world, notice this, you're going to be bankrupt in heaven. Because the last part of verse 5, he says, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It's amazing to me how we don't consider ourselves covetous idolaters, but we do see that other person in there. It's, it's interesting whenever you hear somebody tell, tell, tell somebody else how somebody else ought to manage their money. 
at somebody else and they get mad when there's a ding in their door because they, you know, they, I don't say you got to trash your stuff. But it's, it's, it's amazing how they get more irate over a ding in the door than they do over the lostness of, of a neighbor. How, how, how we literally take these, these metal boxes and we put them in houses called garages. That's how much we, we love them. We, we, we put them in special houses and we protect them as if metal can't handle a little bit of rain. But, but again, it's all right because that's an American lifestyle. That's the way we do things. And, you know, we get mad whenever somebody erases American Idol off of the DVR that has 300 hours worth of other viewing options with our 300 channels over here. Because, again, you know, that's the way we live in our world because it's all about the stuff. It's all about the entertainment. It's all about the thing. And then all of a sudden it comes this opportunity to give an offering, tithe, and there's nothing left to give. And we wonder, oh, well, maybe next time. I don't call it that. Paul calls it that. Paul calls it idolatry. We have this misplaced priorities in our life. It's, a, it's an animal instinct that is in us, and it's not something that you run away from. It's something that you face the zoo every single day of your life. Every single day of your life. And what may get some people at sensuality won't bother them in the material side or prosperity side, but what may get some people on the prosperity side they may not have a problem with them to the other side. So be aware of your animal instinct and deal with it because it's there. Lady Gaga is probably uh, one of the, I guess, the uh, the pop stars of our day that is out, pop, uh, is the celebrity of celebrities of pop stars. Uh, rivaling Madonna of old and, 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 and other people. Barbara Streisand, I guess, maybe if you're that old. Um, but Lady Gaga is, she's at the top of her game. And even in, in, in her hedonistic mind and lifestyle, she is, uh, she understands the animal instinct. I don't know if you've heard her latest top hit, Judas. Anybody heard of that song? I've heard it. Hey, listen, you're in church. Go ahead and confess it if you've heard it. I've heard it several times. Um, it's an interesting song because even in the lyrics of her song, she confesses the tension of her heart. She confesses the, 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 the battle of the animal instinct that is inside of her. This is, these are the words of one, just one phrase of her song. I want to love you, but something is pulling me away from you. Jesus is my virtue. Judas is my demon. I cling to, I cling to. See, what she stated poetically in song and pop culture, Christians need to wake up every morning and they need to ask, am I going to go the Jesus way or am I going to go the Judas way? The Jesus way is a life of love, of self-sacrificing, loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Am I going to go the Judas way and live for the sensuality and the prosperity of my own day? Number three, so we need to expose the darkness. 
expose the darkness. If you look at the life of Christ, you see that Jesus truly does expose the darkness in his life, uh, in, in his time. It's, he call, in verse 8, he says, but now you are the light of the Lord. Verse Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, even Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Matthew 5, verse 16, he says, let your light shine before men that he may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus, Paul, all of them are saying the same thing. There's something about us that we are supposed to be darkness-penetrating light. Now look with me down at verse 8. And notice, and every time I, we read one of these words, light, I want you to circle it, okay? So we're going to start at verse 8, and every time we come to the word light, you circle it. For at one time you were darkness, okay? You were darkness at one time, but now you are light. And the Lord walk as children of light. There it is again, number two. For the fruit of light, number three, is found in all that is good and right and true. Now that's a good way to test the light. Is it good? Is it right? Is it true? Verse 10. If you're trying to figure out what is good, right, and true, what you're ultimately trying to do is you're trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the light. Take no part of the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now here's where we expose the darkness. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when when anything that is exposed by the light, there it is again, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Here, here we are in this text, he's saying light, 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 light. And here we are, he's saying that you are the light. And Jesus is saying you are the light. And so whenever we are, as Jesus is, light, we are mimicking him. We're walking in love. Yes, we're embracing people with unconditional love. We are understanding there's an animal inside of us, this nature inside of us, this sinful pollen being inside of us, and we're going to have to arrest it, get it under control, and get away from it. But there's another thing we do. As mimickers of God, as we step into this dark world, and we bring light to darkness. We bring light to darkness. There's lots of different examples of light. And of course, examples that I give you today aren't the examples of the New Testament first century. There's there's different lights. I wanted to use two examples of two different kinds of light. One is the, there's the light of a, 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 of a flashlight or the light of a chandelier. And I want you to just imagine with me darkness. And in darkness, you have a flashlight. And this flashlight is shining into the darkness and trying to expose it. Now, he tells us that we need to be light. So what do we do sometimes as Christians? Is We take our flashlights and we shine it in their face. All right? And then when we shine that light in their face, we tell them what they're doing is wrong. We point our light at them. And we point it and we say, this is not right. But what we do is we don't enter into their world. And if we get too close, you know, these big old mag-like flashlights like police are trained to do, you kind of carry it like this because if you need to, you need to bop them on the head, you can bop them on the head just in case they're not listening. But this is one of the forms of the Christian life that I see out there. I don't think that's the form of Christianity. A chandelier, I think, is maybe a better picture. 
when you think about a chandelier, now we don't have a chandelier dropping down right now, but if you think about a chandelier, what does a chandelier do? A chandelier sets the stage. A chandelier is a part of the room. It's grounded, literally, to, in the room, but also figuratively. It's a part of the room. You're actually literally a part of that room. You are setting the ambiance of that room when you are a chandelier. Now, this is what I think we need to understand light to be rather than some flashlight pointing into somebody's eyes and telling them where they're wrong. We need to be the chandelier that sets the ambiance for the, the workplace, the ambiance for the, for the schoolhouse, the ambiance for the world in which we live, to where when people get with us, yes, darkness is exposed, but clarity is given. Direction is given. It's modeled. Literally, the world begins to look at us and they say, we can't live without you, world. We can't live without you, Christians. You literally keep the moral fabric of our culture together. You, you literally are the ones who bring hope and life to us. Jesus was kind with his light. He exposed the darkness of the adulterous woman, but he also embraced her with unconditional love. There's an Indian proverb that I'd like to close with. I think would be a good challenge for us. The Indian proverb says this, that when you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. That, that your light would be such a beautiful ambiance to this world that when you are not here, world is not the same. You want to be like Jesus? Don't go around shining your light in somebody's eyes and beating them over the head with your flashlights. Be grounded in that culture. Be a part of that culture. Show light in that culture. Set the stage for beauty in that culture. Right here where we are. Walk in love. Get that animal instinct inside of us under control exposed to darkness. Would you pray with me? Father, we bow before you. In your presence, we realize that we can never truly, fully live the life that, that, that you lived outside of just truly taking it on ourselves to mimic you, to become like you. To live like you, to love like you, to expose darkness like you did. And so, Lord, help us to understand the Christian faith in such a way that we will walk in love, that we will control that sensuality, that prosperity animal inside of us. That we will live fully and completely for you, Lord. Lord, we bow before you now and we just ask that you would do a clean cleaning work inside of us, exposing work inside of us, and help us to walk in your light as you give it to us. We pray this in Jesus.